so when I was at uh, Atlanta Christian College, I remember one year we had this student who transferred in from, a, from another state, and um, I think it was second semester, and basketball season had just gotten started, and we were getting ready to go into the second half of the semester. And so I remember being in the, the guy's dorm one night in the lobby, talking with a bunch of other guys with this new student um, who had come from another state. And as we were talking, he told us that he was a McDonald's All-American uh, high school basketball player. And we were kind of like, how do we not hear about this? Because uh, our basketball team is not very good at all, and uh, we would surely have liked to know about that. So we got kind of excited that this guy was a McDonald's All-American. But the more he talked, I was just like, how do we not hear about this? Why has our basketball coach not told us that we had a McDonald's All-American coming for, to play with us in the second semester. Surely he would have known that and told us about this. And we were a non-scholarship school, but still, you'd think we would know about that. So these were the days before cell phones where we could whip it out and put in the guy's name and see if McDonald's All-Americans were really, if that was really. So we couldn't do that. We just had to take it. So he kind of kept talking, and we were all a little skeptical. So finally I just go, hey, the gym's open for another hour. Let's go right now and let's play some hoops. So that's what we did. We went in and played a couple of games of 21 with this guy. And within the first game, we knew he was not a McDonald's All-American. He wasn't very good at basketball at all, so I don't know if he was joking with us or he was trying to impress us, but it was pretty obvious through his actions that he was not uh, a McDonald's All-American. So, but we've probably all been in situations where someone has told us something that we're maybe skeptical of. Is that really true? Is what that person said, is that really true? How do I know that? And we really don't know sometimes until we see the action of that. Is that not true? And then there's been sometimes we say things to people and they go, is that true? They are skeptical of what we have said about something. And until they see real action, they're skeptical of that. They want to see real action. And as we talked about last week, we've gone into, a, I'm going to continue our series, our new series going into um, the letter of First John, and that's what John is all about. He's saying our belief system, what we say we believe about Christ, who he is, and what he has taught us, we have to show action that we really believe that. Not just that we say we believe that with our mouths, not just that we attend a place that says they believe that and project that, but what do we do in our everyday lives to show that we really believe what we say we believe about Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's called us to do in this world. So we're going to continue that series in 1 John. As I mentioned last week, this is a letter from the Apostle John who was very close to Jesus. He's one of his closest disciples and he was an eyewitness, not only of Jesus' teachings, but he was an eyewitness of Jesus' miracles. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' death. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. He was an eyewitness who heard with his own ears Jesus say, hey, I want you to go from here. I'm leaving, but I want you to go starting in Jerusalem and into Judea and to all of Samaria and to all of the world. I want you to continue this kingdom work, telling them and baptizing them and making disciples of people. That's what I want you to do. So he was an eyewitness of that. And then he was an eyewitness of Jesus actually ascending and leaving and going back into heaven. And he was the one who was kind of standing there going, wow, now what? And the now what we know didn't just stay there. You know, one of the angels appeared and says, why are you standing there? He's told you that he will come back and, and you know, he's going to give you this power on high on the day of Pentecost. But until now, get going. Do what he's told you to do. So they did. So after writing an account of Jesus' life, as we talked about last week, the Gospel of John, um, John was also inspired to write a series of three letters to early 
um, churches in that first century. And he wanted to write this because he says, hey, there's some things going on in culture right now that are saying, Jesus is this, Jesus is that. This is what Jesus taught. And he's going, that does not line up with what we know Jesus to be. I was an eyewitness. I know what Jesus taught. And I wrote that down in my gospel but there's people teaching stuff contrary to that, so you need to know that. So John's, uh, part of his goal in writing those letters was to encourage, equip, and challenge them to stay on track with who Jesus really was and what he called us to be as his followers and what he called us to do. So John taught, as Jesus taught, that our actions should clearly and consistently show what we claim and believe and confess about Jesus. He said there has to be consistency there. So we looked at last week at that first part of the letter where John made this simple statement but a very profound analogy about light and darkness. He says it's, it's very simple. It's light and darkness. Listen to what he said. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship, and we talked about that word which means koinonia, having something in common with someone else. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And notice, as I pointed out last week, he's always saying we. He's saying we're in this together. I was one of Jesus' closest disciples, but we are all disciples as we move forward. And so he's talking about this. So if we claim to have this common thing in common, this koinonia, of being a follower of Jesus, yet we walk in the darkness and our actions point to darkness, then he says we lie and we do not live in the truth. Now, we don't like to hear those kind of things in our culture, do we? We don't like anybody to say that's a lie, that's not true, because we kind of mesh all things in our culture now. But he's trying to make sure that in this culture you need to know the truth and you need to live by that. So John is making sure that these early Christians are not deceived by some of the philosophies, by some of the thoughts within their culture. Those in Christ are in the light and walk in the light. That's very clear. He's making a clear distinction between light and darkness. And he says that's what they have in common. Those who have that in common come together and they illuminate the way for others so that they can be part of that koinonia. So that's what we need. Walking in darkness is not something that those in Christ have in common. Claiming not to have sin, as he mentioned last week, that's not something that those in Christ have in common. Because as we read last week, those claims make God out to be a liar. If you claim to have no sin, he says you make God out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. But we are sinners, and we did need a Savior. So John makes a shift in this letter from kind of... And you'll hear him in this letter, and in the second letter, and the third letter. He's saying... I'm telling you about what's going on. And he considers these people that are teaching false doctrine enemies. And he'll kind of rail on them and he'll get onto that. And then all of a sudden, it's like he stops in the middle of writing his letter. And he goes, but let me talk to y'all. Because he'll kind of get off on a tangent about these guys and what they're teaching and deceiving people with. But he says, then he says, little children. Because he's older now. He's wiser now. And he's talking to some of these people who are new Christians. And he kind of, so that's what he makes this shift in this letter, what we're getting ready to read from describing or talking about those who are clearly making claims that are not true about Jesus and are having fellowship and are not having fellowship in common. So listen to what he says. We're going to go to chapter 2, and I want you to read what he says here. I think that'll be on the screen for us. There it is. Thank you all. All right. So he says, my dear children, there's that term of endearment. Y'all are like children to me. I'm telling you, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have, we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Listen to what he says. Whoever claims to live in Him must also walk, must also live as Jesus did, or walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. It is truth. Its truth is seen in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. A lot of stuff in there, isn't there? And we hear that light and that darkness and that's, that's kind of his theme throughout this. And he wants us to walk. And you notice again, he calls them dear children. I'm a little bit older. I'm a little bit wiser. I've been through these things. It's a term of endearment. I have fellowship with you. We have this in common that we believe who Jesus is, the Savior of the world. And notice how he says, it's not just us. It's for the whole world. This salvation is for everyone. He reiterates that. But it's not interesting that he says, I write, to this, I write this to you that you will not sin. But John, you just said that anyone who claims to be without sin, they are a liar. So what are you saying here? It's kind of interesting that he says that. But when we truly understand that sin separates us from God and we realize we are helpless to be restored back to God, to have fellowship with Him without a Savior, we can't do that in and of ourselves. When we really grasp that, that that seems to be a hopeless situation in and of ourselves without Christ... But when we hear the good news of the truth of Jesus coming through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, and restoring us to God, that should motivate me not to sin, right? But as I've shared with y'all before, when I'm talking to someone about being baptized, especially little kids, I ask this question. I said, so after your baptism, are you going to sin anymore? And they always think they're supposed to say no. I said, yes, you are going to sin again. But you're going to hopefully be motivated again by what you know is the truth to go, wait a minute. And I, I try to say this to people is, why are you living like the person that you buried in that baptismal? Why are you going back to the old Craig and living like the old Craig? That's not who God sees you as anymore. That's not who you are as an identity anymore. You are a new creation as Christ, as Paul talked about. So why are you going back to that? And that's why I, for one, appreciate every Sunday being able to take communion and being reminded that the past week I have lived, I have done some things that were like the old Craig, and I need to be reminded that I'm no longer, that old Craig no longer exists. There is a new Craig, and I've been forgiven with that. So Paul, I mean, so, so John makes it clear who we're talking about here and how important that is to, to have this motivation not to sin. But John's reminding them, he's reminded us that if anybody sins, and we are going to sin again, that we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. And again, he's making us plural. Our sins and for the sins of the whole world. He's always being inclusive here. And this is again an indication of how mature John has come over the years. Because you remember when he was an early disciple of Jesus, he thought that salvation was only for who? 
the Jewish people, right? Only for his people, only for that culture. And he's like, no, it's for all people. But now he's come full circle and understands that. So again, he's reminding us that it's not something we do, but something that has been done for us. That atoning work was done for us. And we think about Memorial Day. We have these privileges, not because we went somewhere, some of y'all did, but a lot of us, like me, for instance, I've never gone anywhere and had to fight for my country. I've never had to do that. But I have these privileges because of what someone else has done for me. And that's what he's talking about is Jesus. And because that has been done for us, we need to live not in the darkness anymore, but John says, in the light. Allowing Christ to illuminate my life and cleaning me up as I walk in that light. It's a process. As soon as you come out of that baptismal, you're not all of a sudden a perfect person walking in the light. It's a process. And when we walk in the light, our sin can be clearly seen and we can repent. We can start going in a new direction that's clearly seen. And we are forgiven, which is clearly seen as we walk in the light in this new direction. So the way I kind of see this is, um, have you ever started washing your car like kind of late at night when it's almost dark? Like, you know, I don't want to wash it in the sun, so I'm going to start right when it gets dark. And I, do, I don't know why I do this, but I do this a lot. Or, or you start cutting your grass right before it gets dark, and, and it gets dark before you're finished. Like you get one side of the car clean, and it's dark, and you turn on the floodlights, but it's not on that side of the car. So you're washing your car, and you're going, I really can't see what I'm doing here. Did I get that spot? And you go ahead and wash it, and you rinse it off, and then you know maybe you finish the, the grass, and you're like, I have no idea if I got that row or not. You know, I don't know. It's dark now. But I got it finished. And then the next morning, you wake up, and the sun comes up, and you go, you look at your car, and you go, oh, wow. I missed that whole spot over there. Or you see this whole section in your yard that you completely missed last night because it was dark. And so I think about that. That happens in our lives sometimes. You might see some spots that you missed because you got caught in the darkness. But sometimes we're not ready to admit that. The light makes it clear and points us to where we have missed. And then we can say, we can deny that in a lot of ways. He goes, I washed that. I don't know what happened, but it's not clean. It's like, obviously you didn't wash that. There's this big, you know, it's all clean on that side, but that one spot, you obviously missed that. Just admit it. Or I didn't miss that spot of the yard. I did the whole yard. I don't know what happened. I guess the lawnmower turned off or something. What? No, you missed it. But we deny that sometimes. And that is, you know, something we have to realize. Or we can allow the light to illuminate what we've missed in our lives. Now, none of us like to have people point out our shortcomings, do we? We don't like someone to say, hey, you missed that. Hey, you forgot to do that. We don't like to have that. And, you know, you would think as we get older and more mature, that wouldn't bother us anymore, but that's not the case, is it? Sometimes as we get older, we get grouchier and crabbier about it. What are you telling me what to do? Especially if it's somebody younger. We don't like being pointed out that. But the light reveals the sin. And when we can clearly see our sin, John is saying what you're supposed to do is, is you confess and address that sin. I have it. It's obvious. It's my sin. You take it on. He says, and it's out in the, it's out in the light now. Don't try to hide it in the darkness. And, but he reminds us that we're cleansed from that and we're restored to God. So quit trying to hide it. Nobody's trying to make you feel any guiltier than maybe you already feel, but he's trying to say that's a reality and now you need to be restored. And this is how we grow in our experience with God. We respond appropriately to our sin and we confess it. But do y'all think that's a problem in our culture now? We try to say there's just, there is no sins. We try to rewrite the Bible. And I, sometimes I want to say people, I say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you just rewrite the Bible and tell us what it really should say about those things? Since you claim to say that these things really aren't, you know, 
I thought we were reading what God's Word is. If that's not what it is, then what is it? It's very interesting. And it's interesting people that usually disagree with you about that are very quick to say, well, you're being judgmental. I go, where did you get that teaching from? From Jesus, and where was that? In the Bible. So you do believe that part of the Bible, you just don't believe in whatever else we were talking about, right? So it's interesting sometimes. But John tells us how we know we have come to know Him. We obey His commands, and God's, tr- uh, God's love is truly made complete in us when we obey what He has commanded us to do. And He says we must walk as Jesus walked. So in the next part, verses 7 through 11, John is explaining something about walking as Jesus said. He said, this is not a new command, but an old command, uh, but an old one that you have had since the beginning. So what is John getting at? What is he talking about this old command? I believe he's probably referring to what he wrote in his own gospel. And this is what Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you go to church every Sunday. No, he says, if you love one another, that's important. So I think he's saying, from the very beginning, this is what Jesus taught. And I, taught, I told you that from my experience with Jesus, that that was so important. And it's interesting, the same chapter with which we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, this is what Jesus did before he even gave them this new command. Before he gave them this command, he got down, as y'all remember, on that night before he was going to die. He got down on his knees and he took out his off his, you know, his robe or his outer cloak, and he started washing everybody's feet. I can't imagine what that felt like and looked like. But all of the disciples were going, what is he doing? But it was love in action. That's supposed to be for a servant. Why are you doing that? You are our teacher. You are the savior of the world. Why are you washing our feet? But he goes, no, this is, it's in action. If you want to be really who God's called you to be, this is what you need to do. So he showed that in action. And then he said, this is this new command I give to you, that you love one another. And that's how people will see that you're really my disciples. So the truth of this command is seen in Jesus, and and John is saying, the truth of this command is seen in Jesus and you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. He's saying, hey, some of y'all are doing this, and it's obvious to people that you're a follower of Christ when they see the love that you show to one another. He's saying, always the thinking Always of believing, always of behaving in the darkness are now passing away because people are seeing you live in the light. And we see people changed by their actions living in the light. But here's something that was obviously going on in the church because John's going, hey, there's some people, if you hate your brother, you're not really living in the light. So there was something going on in this church where there was some false teaching going on and there were some people at tension about what the real teaching about Jesus and, and John's trying to get them to understand that. Brothers were hating each other. And he goes, wait a minute, that's living in the darkness. That goes against that command that Jesus said. Showing love and action towards your brother, that's living in the light. Not hating each other because we disagree on certain issues. But apparently there were those who were feeling hatred towards their brothers and, and sisters and showing this in their actions. And John is seeing this and he's going, what is going on? This is not what God has called us to. The rest of the world is not going to see Jesus when we're fighting among the church. And y'all know this to be true. When the church is fighting, when things are going on in the church and people look and see that fighting, what do they say? Oh, I want to be a part of that. Absolutely they don't. They say, why would I want that? I got that in my family. I got that at work. I got that in politics. Why would I want to go to church and be a part of all that again? So it needs to be a place where we don't have that. But apparently there were those who were feeling hatred towards their brothers and sisters. And John says, this has blinded you. 
You're saying you're a follower of Christ. You're saying you're in the light, but you're living in the darkness because you're not knowing where you're going because your actions of hatred and darkness while claiming to live in Christ, live in the light, it's a lie. I want to share with you from a, uh, an article that was written, uh, I think it was last year sometimes, called The Radical Faith of, of Frederick Douglass by a guy named D.H. Dilbeck. And he writes this, um, I knew a little bit about Frederick Douglass, but I did not know what a devout Christian he was. But he talks about this very thing, about how as a Christian, he was a slave. And he's watching other people who claim to be um, Christians and followers of Christ, and yet they were slave owners. And not only were they slave owners, but the way they treated their slaves was absolutely you know, something that would be in the darkness. And so he talks about this in this article. It says, uh, For his 77 years, Frederick Douglass, America's most famous abolitionist, delivered thousands of speeches, wrote three autobiographies, started newspapers, met with President Abraham Lincoln, and championed the cause of African-American civil rights. But most people downplay a crucial part of his life, his radical Christian faith. The crucible of Douglass's prophetic Christian faith was his childhood suffering as a slave. Before his escape at age 20, Douglas witnessed and endured great cruelty, especially at the hands of Christian masters. He saw firsthand brutal whippings, cold-blooded murder, and the daily trials of physical and psychological abuse. He watched a slave master beat his aunt, a 15-year-old girl of striking beauty, nearly to death. In 1826, Douglas was sent to Baltimore to live with Hugh and Sophia Auld. When he heard Sophia, a devout Christian, read from the book of Job, Douglas decided he had to know more about this man named Job, how he could say, despite his suffering, blessed be the name of the Lord. He secretly taught himself to read. As a teenager, he formally converted to Christianity, shepherded by free black Methodists. Assurance of salvation came slowly, but once he cast all his cares upon God, Douglas wrote this. He found faith in Christ as Redeemer, Friend, and Savior. In March of 1833, Hugh Auld unexpectedly, that was his master, sent Douglas back to the eastern shore for the next three years. Douglas worked as a field hand before escaping and settling into New Bedford, Massachusetts. In 1841, he was involved in the abolition movement. His task, listen to this, was to convince Americans to see the anti-slavery cause as a great moral necessity. To that end, he repeated a chastening, a chastening refrain. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognized the widest possible difference. For Douglas, the problem was not... Jesus Christ. The problem was not Christianity in and of itself. It was the hypocrisy and the actions of Christians, those who said they were walking. He condemned what he called the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity everywhere present in America that he experienced. He blasted the man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week and yet fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. He derided a slaveholder who covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Like the Pharisees condemned by Jesus in Matthew 20, uh, 23 and, and other places in the gospel, slaveholders and their apologists attend with pharisaical strictness to the, the outward forms of religion and at the same time neglect the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. They had utterly abandoned the true Christianity of Christ. 
now. I know that's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? To think at some point in our nation's history, we thought, we're Christians, but it's okay not only to have slaves, but to treat them like that. And he's saying, I see a disconnect there. Just like Martin Luther did when he saw a disconnect with, wait a minute, what we're doing in the church is not necessarily in the Bible. When I read my Bible, there's things going on. Martin Luther King Jr. saw that. Even after we finally had light, thanks to people um, like Frederick Douglass, they shed light on this slavery issue. We finally got rid of slavery, but did the racism stop? No, it continued, and we, we've had to shed light in our country on that and face those things, and we are blessed that we've been able to take those things and say, hey, yeah, we were wrong on that, and we need to change that, and we've changed our laws, and we've changed things to try to, to make that. But why... What I want us to ask is, they we say, well, that's great, Craig, but we've never had slaves. Why even bring that up today? Because it's so easy for us to get caught up in the darkness sometimes and not realize that we're in the darkness. We are blinded sometimes to darkness and disobedience as a church, aren't we? And we need to hold each other accountable. We need to have good leaders, and we need to know, we need to have people sitting out in the congregation that say, what is Craig preaching? Whoever's in that pulpit, who's teaching in those Sunday school classes? Who's teaching our children? Who's teaching our teenagers? What are they teaching them about what the true word of God is? Sometimes we're blind to some darkness and disobedience as a nation, aren't we? And there's some difficult issues that we have in our nation right now that we have to know. What does God's word say? Yes, it's important what the president says, what the Senate says, what the House of Representatives says, but it's more, and even Supreme Court judges say, but it's more important that we say, what does God's word say clearly about these issues that we, that we grapple with every day? And then here's the other one. Where in my life and in your life are we blinded to darkness and disobedience sometimes? So that's the challenge I want to leave with you today. There may be an area in your life and in my life that I'm completely blinded to that I'm living in darkness. I think I got all these other things I'm doing well, and it's very obvious that people can see Jesus in my life by this, but there's this other part of my life, like a blind spot in your car. I didn't see that car. Have you ever done that? Have you got ready to change lanes, and all of a sudden you jerked it back and goes, golly, I almost went right in front of that guy. It was a blind spot, and we have those in our life where sometimes we're walking in darkness. We're blinded to that because we don't see it. So I want to challenge you, say, pray and ask God. Pray and ask God to show you those blind spots, shows you where you may be living in some darkness that you need to change and have that illuminated so that you can say, that's true, I've never really thought about that. And maybe ask some other people, say, hey, this person said that about, or I've been, is, you know, God's been speaking to my heart about this, what do you see? And if somebody's really a good friend, they'll go, yeah, yeah, you, you do that, Craig. You might need to, to work on that. And that's somebody who is walking in the light with you that helps you see that and can make some changes in your life. But it starts individually, knowing clearly who God is and what His Word is. And we need to do that.